This afternoon I want to speak about uh, how we open the heart, how we work with what uh, gets in the way of opening the heart or, or being with that basic kindness and the relationship of our practice of opening the heart to our cultivation of wisdom. And in the process of this exploration, I'll give an emphasis near the end on the practice of forgiveness, which we'll explore some uh, tomorrow. Is the sound level okay in the back? Raise your hand if it's not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. The question has come up uh, among several in the last few days as to what metta really is. And I think sometimes we imagine it to be something more mysterious than its essential nature, which is something I believe very familiar. It's that sense of friendliness or goodwill, wishing well. And there's a kind of a spectrum uh, with our metta practice, which goes from the very simple moment of wishing well for ourselves or for others to what you might call increasing levels of depth and intensity where the metta may be more emotional or more energetic. Maybe perhaps what we were expecting when we came here to have gushing metta flowing freely. <laughs> and Metta at maybe its higher levels of development or certain of its higher levels of developments can be actually quite ecstatic, intense, powerful. But uh, I think most fundamentally it's very ordinary. And I, I was reflecting on this, thinking of a practice which uh, was worked out when I was uh, teaching a few years ago, teaching at our one-month course at uh, Spirit Rock, actually two-month retreat of which the uh, teachers teach one month at a time. And I worked with um, a practitioner who was going through quite a hard time. And we developed a practice um, which was simply to ask moment by moment in the course of a month of practice, what's the kind thing to do? And so it could take many different uh, forms or the, the response to that question could take many different forms. It could be simply, I'm really exhausted now. The kind thing to do is to take a nap or the kind thing to do is to stay with this challenge right now in my practice, but not push too much. And so it became a profound practice for her and she actually has stayed with it. It's three years later. 
it's still a primary practice. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and uh, I thought that she had developed it with my support, and she thought that I had developed it and offered it to her. So I'm not sure what the truth is, but it's a beautiful practice. What's the kind thing to do? Simply asking that moment after moment, it's, it's a way certainly of uh, bringing the metta into daily life, but also here, just in the flow of the day. And I was also thinking about that topic because I remember that um, I was giving a talk which proved to be uh, a little less than a week before my mother died two years ago. And we were sitting at the kitchen table. I was helping to take care of her. And that time, didn't know that what was happening was life-threatening. That she would actually die about six days later. And we sat around the table and I had to give a talk and we talked about what to explore and I, I told her about the kind thing to do practice. She said, oh, that's really good. You should talk about that. <laughs> and so I did. And it's really, that theme has been linked with that, uh, that, that um, situation for some time. And that's really the spirit of metta in a very simple and basic way. I also thought of um, another expression of metta. This is from Bob Dylan an older song. These are lines. So listen for the spirit of metta. I don't want to fake you out, take or shake or forsake you out. I ain't looking for you to feel like me, see like me, or be like me. All I really want to (laughs) do. is baby be friends with you. (laughs) (laughs) And we've explored in the, in Nikki's talk yesterday, that there are different flavors of that uh, basic kindness. And there's this beautiful teaching of the range of different qualities of the heart. the loving kindness, compassion, and um, sympathetic or appreciative joy and equanimity go together uh, as a set. And they, they all reflect certain ways that the heart gets expressed. This is from the 14th century from the Tibetan tradition. One of the great teachers named uh, Longchenpa He said this, out of the soil of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. I've thought also that there are contemporary candidates by which we might expand the Brahma-vihara. I don't know if that takes a special vote or whether you can change these teachings. But uh, 
practices like gratitude and forgiveness. And I think uh, a version of what I call empathy practice in which one is seeking to understand in a um, sympathetic way what another is experiencing is another kind of heart practice. And yet we've seen that, uh, we know in our own experience that the expression of warmth and kindness can be blocked. We can come up against that range of experiences that we've been looking at, uh, sometimes under the framework of talking about purification, what comes up that makes the open heart harder or impossible. And we talk about fear or anxiety. We talk about uh, stories that can scare us, negative narratives. We talk about the judgmental mind. We could also talk about interpersonal difficulties, difficulties in relationships where things get stuck. We get stuck in anger, fear, judgment. We, we get stuck together often. And so we'll be in part exploring, um, particularly through forgiveness, how to work with some of those difficulties. We've been exploring that again uh, very much in our practice together, how the, you know, we can work with metta, we can work with compassion in certain times, we can work with, with mindfulness. We can bring in the, the wisdom dimension. And yet um, one challenge that I think is important to mention right away is that probably for many of you, You've wondered, especially if you're newer to metta, how does our metta practice of opening the heart, we might say, of transforming the heart, connect with mindfulness and wisdom? They seem very, very different at times. There are different methods, you know, they're in a way uh, different doorways. The forms are very different. Some of you may have, have wondered in, in more detail about the very language that's used in the different practices. With metta, we seem to have a very personal language. We wish for a particular being to be happy and to be safe. You know, our mindfulness practice seems to be, and the wisdom practice seems to be rather more impersonal. This is from, uh, this is from Buddha Gosa, from that text that uh, Nikki referred to, that I've referred to as well, from the fifth century. Mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deeds is there. No doer of the deeds is found. Empty phenomena roll on, dependent on conditions. Sometimes it seems like the wisdom practices have us look just at this empty rolling on of phenomena. Isn't there a bumper sticker about empty phenomena? 
I've seen it at Spirit Rock. I think I forget how it. Do you remember, Nikki? Yeah, there's it. Empty phenomena rolls on. You can buy the bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you know, it seems like, you know, the wisdom dimension says, well, it's not exactly the kind of self you think. And then metta practice says, may you, may this self be happy. So it could be a little cognitive dissonance, right? If you haven't had it, I'm not meaning to cause it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be a little light here. But the, the language can be different or... Um, Metta seems warm. Sometimes wisdom seems cool. Right? The temperature is different. Um, metta uses words and concepts more. With mindfulness, we often are blissfully apart from words and concepts. Um, in metta, we wish for something to be the case. You know, again, the question came up yesterday. We can look at it more as a blessing, but there seems to be a kind of wishing. And with mindfulness and wisdom practice, we seem to just say, well, uh, for example, the way that I frame my equanimity uh, practice with a phrase is, whatever you wish for, things are as they are. It's like, I, I sometimes think of that as, whatever you wish for, kid, whatever you wish for, maybe in your meta practice, things are as they are, <laughs> right? So it can seem like uh, attention, right? right? It can seem like that. Again, I'm not trying to create a, a problem where there wasn't one. Um, the Brahma Vihara give a very beautiful way of working with this. I want to say a little bit about how the wisdom and the heart dimension come together. And the, the Brahma Vihara point to one way of resolving this, the apparent tension that I, that I gave through those examples. Um, and there are two teachings connected with the Brahma Vihara, the divine abodes, metta, compassion, joy, equanimity. There are two teachings which to me seem especially subtle and very powerful uh, pointers to in, in ways that help us with this, that help us with the practices of the heart and the connection of the heart and wisdom. And the first teaching is what uh, Nikki brought up uh, last uh, afternoon, yesterday afternoon. It's the teaching of the near enemies. It's a very nice teaching about how these potentially uh, appropriate forms of one of the uh, heart stations uh, can actually be imposters, that they can, in a sense, masquerade, that they're, they're actually not separate from metta. There's not, they're not totally off. My colleague Heather Sunbergs calls the near enemies the near misses. So they're not 100% misses, you know? So when one has attachment with one's caring, there's still is some caring there. It's not simply, okay, there's attachment, forget it. You know, you failed the meta test. <laughs> it's not like that. It's more of a near miss, which means that we have to make some adjustments. And a lot of our practice is tracking for those near misses. For, again, the, the, the standard one for meta is a kind of attachment. 
attached or possessive caring. There's some caring there, but it gets distorted some. And the, the near miss or the near enemy, my colleague Larry Yang calls it the near opposite of, uh, of compassion is pity, where there's some distance. You know, one example of pity I remember from a friend who lives most of his life in a wheelchair. He was at a, a supermarket and someone came up to him and said, you know, um, you're so admirable. If I were you in your condition, I would commit suicide. <laughs> now there was some, something there that was compassionate, but was distorted. <laughs> Right. And then the the traditional near enemy of joy is that what Nikki was calling the over exuberance. The new classical near enemy of equanimity is indifference, which you can hear as almost the absence of the heart quality. And it was interesting for me uh, several years ago I uh, um, published a book, or I wrote a book, and it was published uh, on the connection of inner practices to social service and social action. And uh, I was very interested in equanimity. And in doing that work, I found that there were uh, other near enemies of equanimity. It was interesting. I found a lot of them. And I'll just mention a few that I found, and you can think of it that they look like equanimity, but they're not quite the real thing. One of them is complacency, right? I can, be, I can look like I'm really calm, but in a sense, I've given up on something, right? It can look like equanimity, but it's not really there. Another one similarly would be resignation. I can look like I'm really balanced and equanimous, but in some way, I've probably given up some of the heart quality there. And that really points to the second of what I'm calling these really powerful and, and subtle teachings that come with the teachings of the different stations of the heart. And that second teaching is essentially that to be fully mature, each of the four qualities need to integrate the other qualities. And that's partly an answer to the question about how the heart practices and wisdom come together. And so, for example, the uh, teaching really is, and you can see this, is that metta practice needs in the long run to be balanced with our wisdom practices. In the context of the Brahma Vihara, this is especially done through equanimity practice. Equanimity particularly brings in the wisdom dimension. But there are ways that the four of these are mutually beneficial. And, that, and again, if you, have, uh, if you just try to develop metta and you don't have the wisdom developed, there will be tendencies to be possessive or attached. If you just have compassion, for example, without joy, it will tend to burn out. If you just have joy, without wisdom, you'll tend to over-exuberance. <laughs> and if you just have equanimity without the uh, 
other qualities, metta and compassion, there may be tendencies to indifference or to one of the near enemies. In other words, when these aren't integrated together, there are tendencies to distorted versions of the qualities. This is really pointing to the way that we, um, that we really want to make connections between uh, the heart practices and wisdom. One of the ways that uh, we do that is simply by practicing them uh, together in our lives. Not, not at the same time, of course, but that we, if we have, for example, here we're getting intensive training in metta. And it can be helpful to bring in the wisdom dimension in certain ways. One way is to practice equanimity. Another way would be to practice mindfulness or really focus on the wisdom dimension at the same time as, uh, the same general time as we're practicing metta. One of my Tibetan teachers, uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, he says, if you, if you do two practices with some proximity to each other, they will mingle a technical term. <laughs> and so we can, uh, that's, that's a general guideline. So it's like we do the metta and the metta is using this language that's more personal about wishing, it's a little warmer. We do the wisdom practices which are a little bit different. And if we're doing them both, it's like our intuitive unconscious will do a brilliant integration of them without us even knowing. That makes some sense. There's kind of like a creative tension which we don't have to resolve intellectually. That it gets just by the doing of them, something happens. And so we bring our resources of metta, mindfulness, and the wisdom practices to whatever blocks the heart. And I want to really focus on working with what blocks the heart for the rest of the talk and, and bring, in, bring in forgiveness. You know, we find being here that we're in a protected, idyllic environment, aren't we? Good food, beautiful redwoods, wonderful people. I will testify, I've met almost all of you. Wonderful people, idyllic environment. There still are challenges, aren't there? What's gonna happen when you have less than an idyllic environment? A little more stress. Sometimes disagreeable people. We have challenges here and there are, of course, challenges in our daily life. So how do we work with that? The intention of metta is really audacious. It's saying that I can bring the kind heart to every situation. It's not saying metta is just there when things are going well or just with certain people. The aspiration, getting there is another thing. The aspiration is that metta can be brought to every situation, including the difficult ones. 
Another way of saying this is that metta practice is part or is guided by our general intention in our lives, which is the intention of practice, which is to take everything as learning. You can say that in a few different ways. Another way of saying that is that we learn more and more to make everything workable. The the kind of the miracle, the, the quiet miracle of practice is that increasingly all experiences in our lives become workable, increasingly. It is gradual and can take some time. Another way of expressing that was expressed in the Tibetan tradition in a aphorism, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. I love that. There's another kind of uh, Tibetan af- uh oh, Tibetan uh, af- uh oh, <laughs> it may not come out. <laughs> Aphorism, right? I got it. Okay, I was, I was worried there it was getting, but hopefully it was workable, <laughs> a workable moment. Hopefully, so um, another Tibetan. Um, saying (laughs) goes like this. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. (laughs) But when faced with troubles, my faults are exposed. (laughs) And there's a there's a well-known story from the Buddha of a, a, a woman named Vedahika. And I'll read from the, from the text. The good report about Lady Vedahika had circulated. She is gentle. She is even-tempered. She is calm. Now, Vedahika had a maid named Kali. So you hear that, you kind of know that trouble's in store. <laughs> Vedahika had a maid named Kali who was diligent, deft, and neat in her work. The thought occurred to Kali, this good report about Lady Lady Vedahika has circulated. Now is anger actually present in my lady without showing it? Or is it absent? Or it is just because my work is so neat that the anger present in Vedahika does not show? I shall test her. (laughs) So Kali got up after daybreak after she was supposed to, angered and displeased, Vedahika grabbed hold of a rolling pin and gave her a whack, cutting it open. Then Kali the maid, with blood streaming from her cut open head, went and denounced Vedahika to the neighbors. See, ladies, the gentle one's handiwork. See the even-tempered one's handiwork. See how calm she is. (laughs) And so at that point, the Buddha steps in and says, some practitioner is extremely kind extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch that person. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch the person that it can be understood whether the practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. So that's actually pointing to the fact that sometimes it's good for us to be tested. This is all saying that it can be 
skillful at our own pace to bring in challenges into our practice, including our meta practice. And not to see so much our practice as a way just to always have it together or be calm, but as a way to work with challenges. And again, we face those here, we face those in daily life. One of the ways that metta is very powerful is in the same way that Nikki mentioned in telling the story about the monks in the forest with the tree spirits. That metta is extremely powerful when we develop it as an antidote. There's sometimes a technical term used in Buddhist practice to mean, as in uh, medicine, something that takes our present state and, and changes it. We need an antidote when it's things are generally too much. When mindfulness doesn't work, it could be when it's three in the morning, something didn't go well yesterday with one's work or relationship. Three in the morning, you wake up and there's really intense self-judgment or judgment of another. And three in the morning, we're pretty vulnerable. Has anyone ever experienced vulnerability at three in the morning? Okay, about, about half of us. And so at those moments, and you might have some of those moments here, we can use metta as an antidote where we actually say, what's happening is too much for me to handle. Basically, let me get out of here. And that is skillful sometimes. It's very skillful to use metta. And if the metta is strong enough, because it's a concentration practice, it can serve as an antidote. One of the ways that we use metta with challenges. And again, I think I I mentioned this uh, two two afternoons ago. It's very helpful to know the strength of what's happening. Is what's happening workable or are we just lost in it such that it's overwhelming? If it's overwhelming, using metta as an antidote is possible. And, And um, very good idea. I had an experience like this a few years ago. I was doing a retreat in Colorado. I was a retreatant. It was at uh, Taramandala. And uh, I wanted to camp. And they gave me a, uh, they took me to a campsite. And they said, a very nice campsite. It was kind of remote, maybe half a mile away from anyone else. And they said, Um, You know, uh, about a week ago, a bear came through here, but we found it and we took it 50 miles away. And and I said, okay, I'll be here. Went through the rest of the day, 9.30, I go back to my campsite. I lie down. I think about the bear. (laughs) I hear sounds. Definitely the bear. (laughs) You know that one. Anyone who's camped knows that one. <laughs> right, that, and um, it went on for a while. And at a certain point I said, Meta, to the rescue, please come. And um, started doing Meta. And you know, intellectually I knew that it was extremely likely that the bear wasn't around. But at those moments, such intellectual clarity does not go far. Right. And, and so I started with metta and did it for a while. I thought, okay, maybe 10 or 15 minutes of metta would work. Um, 
I practiced metta for three hours. And so it probably was one o'clock or something, 1.30, pretty late. But uh, after three hours of metta, something settled in me. And I was able to go to sleep without thinking about the bear. I slept solidly. The bear did not come. And I stayed there the rest of the week and I didn't think about the bear anymore for what it's worth. So sometimes the metta can be really helpful. And, and I've used it at other times when, for whatever reason, something was really causing a lot of anxiety. And I've talked with, uh, I've had friends who've spent time in prisons, in Thailand particularly, who did metta practice in prison to work with uh, fear, as well as anger, as well as anger. So that can be really, really valuable. And there are other practices which really help with the the challenges. Um, and I, I've talked with a number of you, a number of you have had different kinds of challenges. And generally speaking, there's, it's a, there's can be a wonderful balance of the mindfulness and wisdom on the one hand, even in the meta retreat when, when challenges come up, a uh, combination of the mindfulness and wisdom on the one hand and the heart practices on the other. So I'll say a little bit about those. When something comes in a meta retreat or at any time that's strong and takes us for a while can be very helpful if we can just to let the experience proceed if it's in the workable range. So very important to make a determination. Is it overwhelming or is it workable? Very crucial determination. Not always easy to ask, but very crucial to ask. If it's in the overwhelm zone, the too much zone, then we want to generally get out of that state. By, could be by metta, could be by um, stopping the meditation, or you know, if we're in the meditation, it could be by opening the eyes. Very helpful technique that can be used is to open the eyes, look around, find something that really attracts you or draws you, that feels pleasant that can actually shift some of the, the operating of the brain, move the, what's happening to a different part of the brain. It brings in the social engagement part of the brain and can, can, can be helpful. So we want to determine if it's workable. If it's workable, mindfulness can be really helpful with the challenge, you know, because there's some part that's really noticing. So we can let grief come through. We can let anger come through. And if it's in the workable range, we can be mindful with it and let it move, let it change, let it flow, and it will do that. And that can be, that can be quite skillful. Another important uh, way to work with challenges is to follow uh, what I think is a really crucial teaching uh, from the Buddha, which is to me a very succinct way of giving the uh, core teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And it's called the teaching of the two arrows. <clears throat> How many of you know that teaching? Well, a lot of you. Well, it's, it's really uh, almost my favorite teaching of the Buddha. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief about it uh, here because many of you know it. But the Buddha once uh, asked his practitioners more or less this question. Everyone experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? They did not answer, 
So he answered his own question, which was a common teaching method <laughs> that he had. And he said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. He was primarily in the text talking about physical experiences, but we could generalize. Sometimes we have difficult physical experiences. Sometimes we have difficult emotional experiences. Sometimes difficult interpersonal experiences. Sometimes difficult experiences related to fairness or justice. Everyone has those at times. In that, there's no difference between a practitioner and a non-practitioner. Where they differ is in, is in what happens when the, those unpleasant experiences arrive. He said that first set of unpleasant experiences is like being shot by an arrow. He called that the first arrow. And we could call that uh, possibly pain. If we mean by pain something that's unpleasant, and that's just a given. It's happening. He said that where they differ is that a non-practitioner, which means us when we're not practicing as well, a non-practitioner will tend, because of the presence of the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow at oneself or others as if that would help. And so what do we do with unpleasant physical experiences? We might shoot the second arrow by tensing around the unpleasant physical experiences. Some doctors say that as much as 80% of some forms of chronic pain is the tensing, not the original stimulus. So John Kabat-Zinn made the first intervention in the medical world uh, with mindfulness by working with people with, guess what? Chronic pain. Because if you could eliminate for many of them the 80%, still have the 20%, but it's very different, right? We know probably the shooting of the second arrow most clearly with emotions. I have something difficult happen, I get angry, and I start shooting the second arrow in various ways. I blame myself, I blame others. I've had an unpleasant experience with a partner that lasted 10 seconds. I shoot the second arrow for the next three weeks, if not the next year, right? That's shooting the second arrow. We know that emotionally, you know. It's so often one unpleasant thing happens and bam, I shoot the second arrow. A lot of it's very automatic, right? When we, when we don't have mindfulness with a situation. So we do that interpersonally. A lot of arguments are people shooting the second arrow at each other, right? And of course, that happens with countries as well. Large number of conflicts are two sides having received pain and continuing to shoot second arrows at each other. And so the, the, the teaching is really pointing to the possibility of really um, having a few capacities. One of them is to be able to be with something unpleasant without shooting the second arrow. One of the main ways that the second arrow gets shot is by the judgmental mind, by judging ourselves, judging others, or by forming negative narratives. 
You know, I have something difficult happen and I start to generalize about it. You know, some one of us here has a difficult first day with metta and says, it's going to be this way the whole week. Does anyone have that occur? I won't, I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> right. So we really, so a big part of our practice is really tracking, we, especially when something difficult is there, do I have a tendency to shoot the second arrow? Try to catch it as soon as possible. When I work one-on-one with people, I think the most common guidance I give, especially when something difficult has happened, watch your shooting of the second arrow. Try to catch it as soon as you can. Try not to continue to feed that shooting. So it would mean feeding the judgment, feeding anger, let's say, feeding a negative narrative. Really crucial. You know? and, and so you can start to see that teaching is a wisdom teaching. Can you see how much that helps with the work with uh, opening the heart? That we need those resources. We need the mindfulness. We need the, the wisdom. We need those teachings to really open the heart. It's not just the metaphrases, but it's as we mature in our practice, it's the combination of mindfulness, wisdom practices, metta practices, other heart practices that help us to open. <coughs> One of the powerful ways to work with challenges that tend to block our heart of several different kinds is the practice of forgiveness. It's not a traditional uh, practice grouped with the Brahmavihara. There are forgiveness practices in Buddhist tradition that go back. A lot of them were done in a monastic context where people bring to light maybe some difficulty or conflict and share it in the community. And we'll be doing a slightly different kind of forgiveness practice. The essence of forgiveness is to have the aspiration not to keep some form of reactivity in relationship to the past in our hearts. It's essentially a, wi- uh, a practice where we have the aspiration, really, I was going to say, coming from wisdom, that I, am, I still have pain or a wound about something in the past, and I find myself reactive. And my wisdom tells me it's possible to have the aspiration to come from the kind heart, even with that situation, even with that, that issue. Possible, not necessarily easy. But again, the horizon of our practice is to bring the kind heart to every situation, including where there's been pain or a wound. And we find, uh, we try to find ways to practice, to work with what's painful and move towards the, move towards the kind heart. The, the psychologist uh, Roberto Asagioli says, without forgiveness, life is governed by an endless cycle 
of resentment and retaliation. Jack Kornfield has a very nice one-liner about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is giving up the hope for a better past. <laughs> very smart. <laughs> It's really about the intention to keep one's heart present or to bring one's heart out when there are difficulties. We'll explore a related practice tomorrow as well as forgiveness practice when we bring in what we call the quote, difficult person, or as Nikki said, the person who is difficult for me. <laughs> we'll bring in that tomorrow and, and really have our focus uh, as we mature in our meta practice, be brought to, to challenges. We didn't do that at the beginning, but on the next to last full day, will invite us to go totally at our own pace, no pushing, no forcing. And by the way, when we do forgiveness practice, we'll work with a level of challenge that is at the most in the middle range and possibly easier. So we're not going to go to the most intense things that we want to forgive. This may be relieving to some of us and disappointing to others. <laughs> because we do the same thing with a difficult so-called, Nikki, it's hard for me to do that. The person I'm having difficulty with. I mean, I, I do it. I guess I say the same thing by, by having quotation marks around difficult. Because once I did a, a talk series, on being with so-called difficult people. And one of the um, main insights that we had very quickly was what, what sometimes is called the blinding insight into the totally obvious, which is that what defines uh, a quote-unquote difficult person? I have difficulties with that person. <laughs> Do you get the, uh, the shift in perspective? It's pretty, pretty important, right? So we'll be working with that, but when we do so, a lot of people come to meta retreats wanting to work out their very intense, challenging relationships, and oh, we'll do that at Meta. Some people, that's their main reason we're coming to meta retreat, and then we disappoint them by saying, we will work on a scale of one to 10 with no more than five. But the whole idea is that we, we train, much like in Meta, we train where it's easier, and then we build the muscle. That's the whole idea. And that's the principle of every form of training whatsoever in human history. You, you don't start where it's most difficult. <coughs> uh, President John Kennedy said, forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. <laughs> this, this is not necessarily in alignment with what we'll be doing. <laughs> Here's another one that I like to give, but it's not necessarily in alignment. Oscar Wilde, you know something's gonna come from, from him. <laughs> Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> <laughs> so generally there are uh, two forms of forgiveness practice that, that exist. We're gonna be working more with forgiveness as an inner practice. In a lot of cultures, it's done as an outer practice, as an interpersonal practice, probably more common than working with forgiveness as an inner practice. Um, I had a beautiful experience of that 
a while ago when I was invited by a friend of mine from Canada who's part of First Nations, which is equivalent of Native American. She invited me to a potlatch, uh, which was about, it was about 14 hours travel north of Vancouver on an island called Bella Bella. And quite amazing. And uh, I met a, I met a, um, a man there, probably in his 30s, and he told me his story. His name is Frank Brown. And he, as a 17-year-old, had um, committed a robbery in the community. It's a small community, maybe a thousand people. You can't even get there by a road. The only way you can get there is by boats. And um, they were going to send him off into the Canadian criminal justice system. And his aunt remembered that there was an ancient practice whereby people were sent to an island, you know, a mile or two from Bella Bella and asked to stay in solitude <clears throat> for a period of time and then brought back into the community. It's what we would call an example of restorative justice. You don't punish the, the person, but you uh, engage in a process which um, heals the rupture in the community and brings the person back into the community as a full member. A lot of people are inspired by that vision these days, as many of you know. And so his aunt um, remembered that practice and everyone, including Frank, agreed to it. And so he lived on this island for nine months. He'd be visited by elders, but he was mostly on his own. And he went through a lot of reflection. And then he came back um, into the community nine months later and they had what they call a washing ceremony, which is like, uh, you can imagine, it's like using water to wash off the harm and welcome him back. And he was once again a member of the community He became interested in the large outrigger canoes which they used to use out in the Pacific Ocean. Got very interested in them. A short time after that, he found that his life vocation became clear. It was to use the outrigger canoes with young people who were in trouble. and to use, use that as a um, vehicle, so to speak, of uh, recovery and restoration. He's been doing that for 20 years. I would see the washing ceremony as a forgiveness ceremony. So a lot of the practices in many cultures are more interpersonal and communal. The, the inner practices are more about keeping the intention to lead with the heart even though there's been the pain, even though there's something in our lives for which we judge ourselves, judge others, have pain about something that happened, have a wound and so forth. And we, we basically tend to see the, the knot that we're in as a version of shooting the second arrow. 
In other words, a form of reactivity. Sometimes we use more technical language. We say the first arrow is pain, and the second arrow, which involves reactivity, is suffering. I like that language because it gets confusing in English because pain and suffering are often identical. But when you see pain as the first arrow and suffering as involving the resistance to what's happening or the reaction, that helps clarify things. Whatever language we use, we want to distinguish between the presence of the unpleasant and the reactivity. And we want to work especially, the whole aim of Buddhist practice is to transform reactivity. Again, I, I would interpret that as the core of the first two noble truths, in fact, and, and bringing in the others as well. So with forgiveness, we say phrases much like in metta practice that incline us towards letting go of the pain and reactivity or letting go of the reactivity especially. We use phrases like, like the one, ones we'll use tomorrow and we'll give some, I think we'll give a sheet out. In any way that I have harmed you, knowingly or unknowingly by thought, word or action, I ask for your forgiveness as much as is possible in this moment. And I might similarly offer forgiveness to another. I might also offer forgiveness to myself. And we use phrases like that. And then we say the phrases and we see what happens. Often we would say the phrase and um, the pain of the situation comes to mind. And we touch it with some mindfulness and some kind heart. And in a small way, something lets go. And we do that over and over again, and there can be a process. My own personal experience, and this is many others share this, is that when there is uh, interpersonal difficulty or pain, forgiveness or compassion practice are more effective than metta practice. That's what I have found for the very simple reason that they tend to more directly take us to feel the pain and it's possible that something softens. That's my experience. Forgiveness practice, compassion practice are designed to soften the heart so we don't get so caught in our self-judgment or judgment of others. And something softens and we realize, oh, this is really hard. You know, instead of being caught in, you did this, why did you do that? We do forgiveness practice and we might say, oh, yeah, that was really rough what we went through. And, and in there, there is a kind of a, at least in the moment, a letting go of that nod of judgment that can happen. Mm. Very crucial that forgiveness doesn't mean to condone. Doesn't mean that what happened was okay we can say that it wasn't okay, but still, if I'm reactive to it, who's suffering? Right. Right. So it's really about my present reactivity, even though what happened may not have been okay, I never want to happen again, I will take steps to prevent it from happening. Still, forgiveness is possible. No coincidence that uh, Dr. King said that forgiveness is not an occasional act. 
but a continual practice. So it's not condoning. We can set boundaries. We can say never again. We can choose not to see the person anymore. So forgiveness is about letting go, we might say, of the weight in our hearts while acting appropriately. Really crucial. It's also about not about forgetting. Forgiveness is not about making believe that something did not happen. We want to remember for the sake of skillful action. It's also not about uh, refraining from action. Sometimes we need, when something difficult has happened, to talk to someone, to say no, to set boundaries. That can go hand in hand with the practice of forgiveness. Forgiveness can't be rushed and can't be pushed. And sometimes we may do forgiveness practice. We come up against something which says, I'm not ready. And we can respect that. We really incline, it's like uh, all of our heart practices, we incline in a certain direction and then we let whatever happens happen. So we'll see the, we'll see how we do the practice tomorrow and I'll give some guidance on it. One of the things that we do is that we make a distinction between the person and the action. We can, uh, in a sense, criticize the action, but we don't condemn the person. It was interesting. My mother raised our family on that principle. She said, you know, I value the person. I love you. Sometimes what you did, not okay. (laughs) Many, maybe some of you similarly. And there was a funny story when uh, when my brother was five, uh, he did something that my um, mother uh, didn't like. And she told him, I love you very much, but I don't like what you did. I think he hit another kid or something. I love you very much, but I don't like what you did. And he responded, don't talk to me like a psychologist. Just spank me <laughs> like the other parents. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, I, I don't know too many five-year-olds who use the word psychologist. <laughs> but anyway, um, so um, there is that distinction. We really, we basically, very much like in Nikki's guided practice, we remember like the preciousness of every being. And we don't say you are perpetually linked in my mind with your unskillful, let's say, unskillful action. We make a separation. And that's part of it. That's not easy, right? Again, we can't rush it, but that's, that's the basis for what we do. Another principle is, as I mentioned, we start where the forgiveness is easier and we work up to more difficult ones. I like to do forgiveness practice while driving. Someone cuts me off. Oh, I forgive you. I know you're in a hurry to something really important. <laughs> Right, And um, I actually approach, uh, I try to have the intention when I drive anywhere to have the intentions of generosity and forgiveness. It really saves a lot of reactivity. (laughs) Yeah. So we can't rush it. We have to go. We usually work the muscle up by doing small stuff, maybe 
maybe like driving and so forth. And we, we, um, but we have to be with what's there. And so sort of the near enemy of forgiveness might be to rush the forgiveness so we don't touch maybe the anger. That would be a near enemy. So we don't touch what we need to touch. We don't touch maybe the sadness or the pain or the anger. Another kind of near enemy could be that we become codependent and we don't, we don't actually say or do what we need to. That could be, that's a danger of forgiveness, right? That we don't actually act in the way that's appropriate or have the conversation that could be hard because, oh, I'll forgive, but we haven't changed the dynamics and they'll keep on happening, right? So that's, that's something to look, look for or that we forgive, um, you know, we forgive maybe in the context of social justice. We forgive something, but we don't act to bring about justice. That would be a misuse of forgiveness, I think. That would be a, a, a near enemy. So tomorrow morning we'll work with the phrases. And here maybe I'll just, I'll just finish by saying that Forgiveness is one of our best tools for working with the challenges to the heart. We need to work with forgiveness, just like with metta or compassion or joy or equanimity, using the different resources, using our mindfulness, using our wisdom, bringing them together. And again, as we, as we mature in our metta, as we mature in our forgiveness, we'll feel more and more like we're using all of these resources, that our metta has a lot of wisdom in it, a lot of mindfulness. We need that, you know, to see when we shoot the second arrow, to particularly to have an understanding of the situation. So increasingly the heart and the mind, the wisdom, the body are connected, you know, and our our practice can really flourish with bringing all of, our, all of our resources. There are doorways that we take that are more wisdom doorways or heart doorways. And as it, but after we've gone through those doorways, in a sense, we find as we keep on practicing that the other doorway is not far away and that we've in a way um, connected what we've learned from the different doorways so that the maturity of our practice involves uh, what we've sometimes talked about as a wise embodied heart and that's our direction and we just keep going um, moment by moment, step by step, session by session, learning by learning. And it's great that we can do it together. <laughs>